All right, thank you guys so very much, and thank you, Grace, for being in the house of the Lord, for tuning in wherever you are. I know we've got this rise of Delta variant cases around us. Let's please, please pray for those that uh, are sick in and around our church family. For those who are working, we met a a young nurse that has just started over at UT Medical, and uh, she was visiting in the first hour. We want to pray for those out there. We're going to have a special time of prayer at the end today. Uh, on the 20th anniversary, uh, day after the 20th for 9-11. But I want you to begin turning in your Bibles to 1 John 4, please. We're talking about blessed assurance. And let me just say that I will be stepping away from the series for several weeks. have a very special, strong message that God gave me actually a number of years ago in a season not unlike what we're facing, a season where there was just a lot of turmoil and chaos and So I wrote this message that I am reworking for grace called Praise Through Problems. I think it'll be very timely. The following week, on the 26th, we have something very different, very special, and we're going to also take communion together that day. We have a new kind of cup that we're going to try out with you, really a sanitary way of doing it without having to pass everything, but it's a new one. It's not one of those foil topper that's really tough. It's a brand new thing that we found, so, um, and they make it in the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic version. I'm not even going to tell you what we're buying, okay? So you just have to come. No, <laughs> I think you know, but we're going to have that on the 26th, and then we'll be back in the series, and I will finish it by the end of October before the holiday season gets cranking with Thanksgiving, Christmas, and whatnot. So we're on the final stretch, but we want to finish chapter four well today. Before we do... We're going to be memorizing this verse again, 1 John 4, 4. Let's say it, and then we'll throw a few blanks in it, okay? Join me, please. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Very good. Let's say it again. Blanks this time. You ready? You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Yeah, and that was the message, right? Greater is he. Greater is he that is in me. And so last week we started with Uncle Huey's tune, right? The power of love. And I gave you some intro there. Let's go back and let's look at that together. We'll throw it up on the screens. You have some of the main points on your notes. We said the power of God's love reveals the people of God's family. They'll know that we're Christians by our love, one for another. And so we are learning, what does that mean? It means that when we're saved by love and indwelt by love, we're going to demonstrate love. doesn't mean we're going to love perfectly all the time, but we're maturing in our love. We also learned that the power of God's love reveals the purpose for God's Son. Jesus came as the propitiation for our sin. He satisfies the wrath of God against sin against wickedness. We heard from Warren Wearsby that Christ's death was not an accident, but an appointment. Jesus didn't die as a weak martyr, but as a mighty conqueror. Today, we're going to continue in this. I'll give you another point and a few sub-points, but I want to ask a couple of questions. And it's something I've I've posed to our students before when I've stood before them in chapels. But do you want to know God's plan for your life? Do you want to know? I met another young lady. We had a number of visitors in our first service. Took us right up to this service time, which was awesome. But I met another young lady, a beautiful young lady that graduated high school recently, 18 years old, and believes God may be calling her to missions. 
Well, do you want to know God's plan? I think all of us, if we're honest, at some point are saying, Lord, what, what am I here for? Is this about more than me? Lord, how can I have a life that's bigger than myself? How can I leave a legacy? I hear it, I read it, I see it all the time. People want to know why they're here. If there's really a God, why did he create me? Why did he put me at this place at this time? See, I know this about you. Because you got up this morning, and because you made a choice to come to the house of the Lord, and the very fact that you had life in your body means God's not finished with you. God has a plan for you. I know that about you just like I know it about me. But we need to be considering how does the love of God figure into this? Well, the love of God gives us the big picture. It was like uh, this drama class. They were trying to save money in a local college, and so the director only purchased a few copies of the script. And rather than give the script of the play out to all of the actors, he cut it up in sections, and he only gave them their parts. Well, they started to rehearse, and he discovered very quickly that it was a total disaster. Missed cues everywhere. Nobody understood what was going on. And he finally called all the actors together, and he said, just sit down, be still, and let me read this thing to you from start to finish. As he finished reading through the play, one of the actors said, oh, well, now it makes sense. Now I know what it's all about. And I think in this life, if all you look at is your line, all you look at is the part that you would play, you're never, never going to understand God's big picture. If you only look at your piece of the puzzle, but you never see the top of the box, you're never going to get it. But when you step back and say, my piece is part of a larger picture, that it's true that the world doesn't revolve around me, that I'm not the center of it all, but that Christ is all in all. And when I see that God's got a story, his story, that's why we call it history, it's God's story unfolding. And God called me to have a part in his story. I think when you see it that way, you'll understand that this imperative to love one another is so important to God's big picture. So we're going to discover what God had in mind for us in addition to his perfect plan of salvation in Christ. With that being said, let's honor the reading of God's word by standing together, please. And I'm going to reread the same text from last week, but we're going to focus more on the final verses of the section. 1 John 4, picking up verse 7. Beloved, which simply means my brothers and sisters in Christ. Let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested or made known toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. And by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Does Lucy want her G-Paw? It's okay if she does. She can come up here. I'll hold her. She's not feeling good this morning, so they kept her out. So 
we know, look at this, this is so important. We've known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, God in him. Verse 17, love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness. Now, here's where it gets good, folks, when it comes to God's plan, because we're going to come to the end of it all one day. And he says, love has been perfected or matured among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. In other words, we're here for more than ourselves. There's a plan. There's a purpose. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. And we love him because he first loved us. Some translations omit the word him. So we love, just in general, we love because he first loved us. And if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, well, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he's not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an incredible passage of Scripture. As we come back into it this week, I pray that we would understand that you have something for us that goes beyond this life. And that when we stand before you one day, we want to stand in boldness, with great confidence, in blessed assurance, so that we know that we know that we have loved well. We have loved you and loved others in a way that has drawn people to you. God, I pray that we would be a church that would be ablaze with love one for another and for a hurting world around us. Let us be light. Let us be salt for your glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you and be seated. So we've said the power of God's love reveals the people of God's family, who's in, who's out. The power of God's love reveals the purpose for God's son. And then today, let's focus on this. The power of God's love reveals the plan, the plan for God's people, God's pattern, God's purpose, God's plan. First, we see in the text, God wants to live in us. He doesn't just take satisfaction in saying he loves us. No, he shows us he loves us. Warren Wearsby said the cross is a plus sign. I'd never thought about this before. He said the cross is a plus sign. It reconciles sinners to God and people to one another. So that's that vertical, horizontal relationship. He says if two Christians don't love one another, they've taken their eyes from the cross. The cross is what brings us together. And in verse 12, he said no one has seen God at any time. We talked about that last week, meaning in his full manifest form. But John argues, no, though no one has seen God, God's character is seen in believers who love like he loves. And we've already spent a lot of time on that. But what he's trying to get at in this second half of four here is that our life is about so much more than us. Another Warren, but this time Rick Warren, I mistakenly said Warren, we be in the first service, but Rick Warren, in that seminal work of his, The Purpose Driven Life, starts the work with one little important sentence. It's not about you. I think if I were writing that, I would have probably said, it's not just about you or not only about you. Part of God's story is about you, and it is about me. 
And part of why God sent his son Jesus into this world was to redeem, to save, to bring salvation to you and to me. But it's not only about us. It's not all about us. It's not primarily about us. It's about him. God's amazing grace and love for all is made more credible when unbelievers have seen God's love reflected in those of us who say we believe. God's love flows from us as we yield to his spirit. I love this statement I came across when studying for today. He said, Christians do not love each other because of their good qualities, but in spite of their bad qualities. So as we abide in love, we're going to be actively, visibly loving others, even if they don't so much love us in return. Eight, 17 and 18, look at this. Love has been perfected, matured, brought to fruition among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as Christ is, as he is, so are we in this world. Confidence, boldness. 1 John two twenty eight talked about having confidence before Christ. Confidence comes when we live right before God and right before others. The person who doesn't live in true love may experience shame or condemnation before the Lord. But watch this. I wrote it like this. If we live in love toward God and others, we'll have confidence when we see Jesus. And you guys know the second part of that. Fear expects punishment. Boldness expects love. I'm fearful because I'm afraid of what's coming. Now, here's the reality. Everybody after death and the consummation of the age is going to face the Lord. You're either going to be on one side or the other. Are you going to be in the line that, face, that is fearful? Are you going to be in the line that is bold? I'll explain that in just a moment. But let me see if I can explain the second half of what I wrote. Fear expects punishment. Boldness expects love. Let me see if I can explain it this way. The most dreaded phrase for me as a child and for some of you as children was just wait till your, your dad or your father gets home. You just wait till he gets home. If I had done something wrong, and I know you find that shocking and hard to believe that that would have happened, but in my childhood, if I messed up, if I did something bad, I was not expecting my father to come home and give me, uh, put me in quiet, quiet time or any of that. I didn't expect that. My dad um, lived by Proverbs that he that spareth the rod hates his son. doesn't say spoils him. It says he hates him. And let me tell you, my dad loved me a lot, a lot, a lot. So when I messed up, I did not want to get in front of my father. I had no confidence. I had only fear, fear. Now, I think it's a healthy fear because the Bible describes fearing the Lord in a very healthy way, but it was still fear. And when I did something good or right, maybe I helped mom around the house or I went on and mowed without being asked or I did something, you know how I approached my dad? With boldness, with confidence. I had no problem standing in front of my father when I had done what my father would like or expect. I only had that fear when I had messed up. You know, the Bible says that no one who walks well with Jesus in this world should fear approaching his judgment seat one day. We should never, ever fear that. The Bible says there's a great white throne judgment coming for the unbeliever, but there's a bema seat judgment coming for those. Bema means the judgment seat of Christ. 
Well, we know if we've lived well loving God and loving others and we've received Christ as Lord and Savior, because it's the only way that you can live well in those things, then we have no fear. Why? Because mature love, perfect love, has no fear. Perfect love casts out fear. I bet you all know the word for fear right there. It's a Greek word, phobeomai. Everybody know what English word we get from phobeomai? What is it? Phobia. That's literally where we get the word. Phobia. To be frightened. To have a sense of alarm, fright, or terror. And John says, he promises his readers, if you live in mature love, if you're growing in your love for God and it manifests itself by loving others, you have no phobia. Now I'm going to tell you something I'm probably going to regret. I've regretted sharing this every step of the way, but I have a phobia uh, a phobeomai. It's a big one. I'm still working at it, to be honest. I have not matured past it. So it happened from about the time I can remember when I was five. In the big red barn Dad and Papa built, uh, it had a shed on each side, and one of them had doors where we kept some bigger equipment. And the way the security worked was with a padlock that wasn't locked most of the time. You reached under the barn because it was built off the ground, and you grabbed the key off a nail. Did y'all ever do that? And the neighbors all knew where the key was if they needed something. So not super secure, right? But you reached under, you grabbed. My dad asked me to get him something. He was working around the front. We had a big yard when I was growing up, a lot of land around us. And so it was a good ways from the barn around to the front of the house. And I reached under and I got the key, but I got more than the key. On the back of my hand, there was a spider like that big, or probably like that big, but he felt like he was that big, right? And I was just a little bitty dude. And he stayed with me the whole time. I remember running and screaming all the way around to the front of our house. And my dad thought I'd cut something off, but in fact, it was just a little uh, hitchhiker on my hand. And so my dad, he just flicked that spider off, and he tried to console me. But from that day until this day, which is 40 years ago, I do not like spiders. Do you all know Mike uh, Floyd has a phobia, right? Yeah, okay. So multiply his fear of snakes by about 100, and that's my fear of spiders. I don't like them. Now, if you want to mess with me and you try to get me with a spider, I'm going to simply pray that God infest your armpits with the fleas of a thousand camels, okay? You do not want to mess with me in this. I've always had people that heard me say that and still tried to mess with me. Um, we, we had some webs. We kept getting these webs in our garage in Florida. And so I finally called the bug guy and he came over and looked and he said, um, Mr. Lewis, you got a problem. I said, okay. I said, I know that. Clearly, there's spiders or something building these nests or webs or whatever these things are. And he said, yeah. He said, you, you've got an awful lot of black widows living in your garage. <laughs> and, and then he said, that, Mr. Lewis, I wouldn't call it an infestation yet. So one of my staff pastors made this picture and sent it to me. <laughs> what do you do when the bug guy says, I wouldn't call it an infestation yet? The best thing to do is just burn your house down, right? Just burn your house down, just move. I got the sprays, I got what they told me to get, I soaked everything. I don't even know how we had sheetrock left in that garage because I soaked everything so much in there because I really, really, really don't like spiders. I mean, I'm telling y'all, I would kiss a snake on the mouth before I would touch a spider. I just don't like spiders. And it's a real fear, and it's legit, and... You know people that have arachnophobia as well. I'm sure some of you may share in that fear. Uh, but here's the reality. More than arachnophobia, I know too many people that are scared to death of death. 
That's a real thing. They are terrified about what's next. They have no boldness. They have nothing but fear. I'm going to tell you right now, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, I'd be scared too. Because what's next for you when you do breathe your last, whatever the cause, natural or otherwise, when you cease to exist in this life and that heart stops beating and those brain waves stop working, if you are apart from Jesus Christ, you will forever be separated from the Lord. And it's a horrible, terrible place called hell that the Bible describes vividly as a lake of fire, a sea of torment. That never ever ends. That is scary to me. But if you know Christ, you do not need to fear. You stand boldly in confidence. And a a, a Christian who fears what's next shows that they have not reached maturity of the faith. A person who lives in love toward God and others has nothing to fear. If you fear God now, you will not have to fear him then. And those are two different ways John uses the word fear in the text, by the way. I feared my father in the right way so that I lived in accordance to his standard, and when I saw him, I could have boldness. That's what John is saying. God's plan for you is that you live in a way that creates boldness, confidence now and in the life to come. Now, the New King James renders verse 19, we love him because he first loved loved us. But a lot of scholars think the word him was added. And I actually like the rendering better when it simply says we love because he first loved us. We have the ability to love God and others because God loved us first. He made a relationship with him possible, and we cannot claim to love him and hate people made in his image. It just doesn't work that way. It just proves one thing, according to the Bible, that we're liars. We've talked about that before in the series, but sometimes it seems hard to prove whether we really love God because we can't see him with our physical eyes. So how can I show him that I love him? By loving the people made in his image. I want you to see something. If you've got a Bible in hand or you can click over easily, just look at a couple of things. Look at the end of Matthew chapter 25, if y'all can. I don't normally have you do this, but just for context of what I'm getting at, the end of Matthew 25, starting with verse 31, says that the Son of Man will come in glory. Holy angels with him. He'll sit on the throne of glory. So Christ will be on that bema seat. That's um, that word for judgment seat. Then there's that great white throne over here again. When there's this separation at the end of the age, you don't want to be in that line. You want to be in this line. You want to be in front of the Lord and the the Lord Christ. It says, all nations will be gathered. He'll separate them one from another. As the shepherd divides sheep, sets the sheep on the right hand, goats on the other. All he's saying is saved, unsaved. Saved, lost. And the king says to those on the right, hey, come you all. Come, those of you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom. And the king will say, because I was hungry and you gave me something to eat, and I was thirsty and you gave me drink, a stranger you took me in, naked you clothed me, sick you visited me, in prison you came to me. In other words, those with legitimate need, not those milking the system, those with legitimate need. And then the ones on the right, the sheep will say, Lord, we we don't remember when you were hungry or thirsty or naked or in prison, we don't, when, when did we help you? 
And what does he say? Inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So when you loved people well, you loved God well. When you were good to people in a moment of need, you were good to God. He went on in this account to say, now, you know what? I was hungry. You gave me nothing to eat. Thirsty, nothing to drink. Naked, you didn't clothe me. You didn't visit me. You didn't help me. And they said, Lord, we, we've done all kinds of things. What, what do you mean we didn't? And he said, well, when you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. One of the reasons we're going to start promoting feeding the 5,000 again in a few weeks is because if people have genuine need, if people have genuine need, then we're called to genuinely help them. You say, yeah, 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 but people will milk the system. They'll take what they don't really need. Listen, that's not between you and them. That's between them and the Lord. And, you know, the reason we sent money this past week, a lot of it, to Middle Tennessee and to Louisiana, was because it's one thing to say, we're going to pray for you all down here. We're praying for you flood victims. We're praying for you that are suffering. It's a whole other thing to say we're praying, and in practical ways we're helping. We're helping you with the things that you need. True Christians do such things. As God's love fills our lives, he gives us a model of how we act and respond in human relationships. It's not just what we say, but how we live. Dr. G. Campbell Morgan, a famous British preacher whose four sons all became pastors, influenced millions with his preaching and teaching and writing. One day, his young son, Howard, had finished preaching, and a reporter asked him, he said, well, son, since you come from a family of five preachers, who's the greatest preacher? Without missing a beat, the son, though expected to give honor to the father, said, oh, that's easy. The best preacher in our family is my mother. You see what he's saying? That's true in a lot of our families. Mrs. Morgan had never preached a formal sermon in church. But what her son was saying is that her life was a constant sermon of the love of God lived out before her sons and before her husband. And you know people just like that. You know people that would never, ever dare stand on a stage. They would never get a microphone hooked up to them. They would never proclaim anything like this, but their lives reflect the love of Christ. And I know, I know our country and our culture is making more of a mockery of biblical Christianity in these days. And in our land, it's still pretty easy to make a verbal profession of Christianity or even to say, I love God. But it is getting harder and harder to live in such a way. Why? Because we have relationships in our society normally built on reciprocity. You know what that means. It simply means I'm nice to those who are nice to me. Joe invites me to lunch, I invite Joe in return. I borrow a tool from Jimmy, Jimmy borrows from me. But even sinners, Jesus once commented, love those who love them. Even those apart from God are good to those who are good to them. But love in the Christian community does not require repayment. Love in the Christian community does not require reciprocity. That's why it's called agape love. One way, unilateral, self-sacrificing love. To do good because God is good. To show love because God is love. To be the real deal because they'll know that we're Christians by our love. And this kind of love drives out fear. It's so beautiful. It's like this guy named Stan. I read part of Stan's story. Some of you might have this story. Stan was antagonistic and bitter. He was quick to be offended when everybody slighted him. He had a poor self-image. He couldn't believe that God would actually accept him with all of his faults and his negativity. Even when things went well in Stan's life, 
He had this aching fear that it wouldn't last long enough. Stan was invited by some Christian friends to connect in a truly loving church whose members accepted Stan just as he was. They quickly began to understand his behavior and overlooked his insults, and they returned those insults with love. They began to invite this pretty unpleasant guy into their homes. And gradually, Stan began to realize that, you know what? These people really do love me. I can be real with them. I can be vulnerable with them. And now for a time, Stan became worse. He began testing them to see if they were the real deal. But Stan finally became convinced that he was loved. And with that discovery came a great release that through these true brothers and sisters in Christ, Stan could experience the reality of God's love. See, that message of Calvary that he had struggled to accept intellectually now touched his heart profoundly, and it released these knots of fear and guilt from within, and Stan found a community of brothers and sisters like him and even different from him, but they were accepting of him, and he was free to grow into a loving person. Stan would grow to accept Christ as his Lord and Savior because people were real. Now, that doesn't mean they said anything goes, Stan, But when he came to Christ, they trusted that the Lord would begin the transformation process from the inside out. And I think what will make Grace Baptist Church stand out is a true love of God and others, the real deal. I've told our guys, and hopefully in a few weeks we get another one on the team coming up from Texas. Matt and Ruth will be joining us. We'll be voting on him as a family pastor. I tell our guys, I tell our team all the time, We've got to be the real deal. People have to see you out and among them and accessible to them, and you have to be gregarious and winsome, and it has to be real because they'll see right through the phony. If you just love the stage, if you just love the crowd, but you don't love people, then you are not demonstrating the love of God. I know too many pastors that love the crowd but hate individual people, and it's not right. If we aren't in this together and if we're playing a game and we're acting, then they have every right to call us hypocrites. We did not start by loving God. God loved us. God reached out first. And first being loved by God, now we are free to love him and those made in his image in return. Loving one another is not something we ought to do is something we should want to do. So what are some applications that grow out of this? Well, first, the better we know God's love, the more we'll walk by faith with Christ and the more we'll be able to show God's love. You say, Pastor, how do I know God's love? Become a student of God's word. To know the love of God is to know the word of God. But please be careful. Can I give you a caveat about simply a devotional life? Your devotional life can make you great in orthodoxy and horrible in orthopraxy. You can become so heavenly minded that you are no earthly good and you are separated from where the rubber hits the road. You can be an ivory tower theologian but never really love people. It's like Helen who came home from a youth retreat on fire of what she had learned. She told her sister, Janet, she said, Janet, we had great sessions. She said, I learned how important it is to do a daily quiet time. And every day, I'm going to open God's word, and I'm going to read, and I'm going to study, and I'm going to live to be more like Jesus. And Janet said, that is great. But about a week later, Janet was doing some house chores, and Janet was vacuuming. Well, 
Helen began to scream out of her room. She said, do you have to make all that noise? Don't you know I'm trying to have my devotions and get closer to God? Well, I've been that guy some. Hey, can't everybody just be quiet and leave me alone? I'm trying to get close to God here. I'm not saying there's not a time and a place to be alone. But if we're ugly as we're trying to get close to God, that's not at all what he's looking for, is it? I mean, do you read the word of God to be finished or to be changed? Which is it? Do you read to check a box or do you read so that the Holy Spirit of God quickens the word of God alive in your heart so that you live more like the Lord Jesus to a watching world? The Bible is a revelation of God's love, and the better we understand his love, the easier to obey him and love others. So be a student, but don't just be a theologian. The fact is, the second application I see here is that unless we love the lost, our verbal witness to the lost will be useless. The love of the gospel was both declared and demonstrated in Christ. The only way to effectively win others is to declare and demonstrate the gospel. Sometimes our witnessing may be with words only. We need verbal expressions or a verbal testimony and vivid expressions of love. I want to ask, I'm going to throw out a profound question I read several weeks ago when I was prepping ahead for this. Just let me give you a profound question I read in a book on 1 John. It asked this, could it be that God permits the world to hate Christians so that Christians may return love for the world's hatred? I think that's a fair question. Jesus said, blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely on my account. But I will say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Huh. So if everybody loves you all the time, you can just respond with love because that's what the world does. But when the world hates us the most and in every nation... Historically, everywhere Christianity is hated and they attempt to push it down and obliterate it everywhere around the world, it's grown deeper and stronger and even wider. Did you realize that there are more Christians in some of these nations that are antagonistic to the gospel than what I would say may be genuine Christians in our own land? See, the power of God's love reveals the people of God's family. You'll see people doing amazing things around the world. The power of God's love reveals the purpose for God's son. He came to pay the price for you and me, to satisfy the wrath of God. And the power of God's love reveals the plan for God's people. Notice I said the plan, not a plan. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior today, I'm going to tell you God's plan for you. Step one. Say yes to Jesus and trust him as Lord and Savior of your life. You say, yeah, 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 but I don't want to hear that. Tell me what's next. I can't tell you what's next, nor do I believe God will reveal to you what's next until you get step one. Step one, say yes to Jesus. Step one, say yes to the good news. 
that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Say, step one, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Step one, none is righteous, no, not one. Step one, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Step one, our sin has separated us from a holy God, but in Christ we can be reconciled one to another. Step one, say yes to Jesus. You haven't done that, you can't get step two. For those of you that have walked the path of step one, I have said yes to Jesus. He is my Lord and Savior. What does God want from me? God wants you to show the love of Christ to those around you. Well, yeah, but I just, I, I just don't like people that much. Well, it's not about liking them as much as it is about loving them through the power and the person of the Holy Spirit and letting God love them through you. And if you are a Christian, God wants you to show the light and love of Christ so that others see him shining in your life. You're going to keep walking with Jesus, and you're going to keep talking like Jesus, and you're going to let the world see in you and through you the power of of love. I want you to stand with me as Melissa comes to play the piano today, and we're going to do something just a little different here. 20 years ago today, 20 years ago today, we saw houses of worship that opened up, as ours did in central North Carolina in Greensboro, we saw houses of worship opened up and altars full. 20 years ago today, we had a real sense of unity and patriotism. We had a real sense of appreciation, deep, deep appreciation for those who ran toward the disaster as others were fleeing. We had a deep sense that God's going to get us through this, even though these are very hard and sad days. God, thank you for those firemen. Thank you for those first responders. God, thank you for our military who's being called together. God, our hearts ache over the thousands lost. God, the images of towers crumbling in the Pentagon being exposed in Flight 93, in the field where it was just obliterated, and then beginning to hear the testimony, beginning to hear the stories. What's happened in two decades? What has happened? Do we have the same sense of national unity? Now, I don't think we should ever hide the cross behind the flag. No, no, no. But do we have the same sense of gratitude? The same people who ran into those burning buildings are still running into all manner of situation today. What I ask us to do in the earlier hour and what I would ask you to do now is if you're so led, if you were willing to pray 20 years ago, would you be willing to pray today to say, God, our land needs a healing. There's still chaos around the world. There's a global pandemic that we have now faced for a year and a half. And we're facing different waves and different ways and we're trying to navigate these waters that none of us have ever, ever navigated before. But God, what a perfect time to show the world love. I went to Berlin, Germany 
just six months after 9-11, and my purpose of going to Berlin, Germany, with a group from our seminary was to witness to Muslim refugees. You say, what a weird time to go witness to Muslims after the 9-11 attacks. Well, not everybody's a radical Islamist terrorist, okay? Not everybody believes that way. But I met some Muslims in Germany that hated us, hated Americans, hated our president. But the kinder I was, the nicer I attempted to be, the more the guard began to come down and they said, well, wait a minute. You don't just hate me because I look this way. You haven't judged me purely because of my backstory. You're willing to sit and share just like our team this week, witnessing in Senegal, West Africa, just like our team, sharing the love and light of Jesus Christ with Muslims there that need the Lord Jesus as Savior. We need to pray for the state of our land. Say, well, what's going to stop terrorism? What's going to stop people from blowing us up and trying to do all manner of evil? The only thing I know to combat hate is not more hate, but the love of God. People can still be transformed. People can still be changed. But if you don't believe that, it's going to be very hard for you to pray for that. But if you believe God is still in the business of metamorphosis, transformation, change, then in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to come to the altar. And just like we were on our knees September the 11th and 12th, and in the weeks and months that followed, just like we were on our knees and the carpets of the altars were wet around this land, can we not come back and say, oh God, we need a healing. Things have not gone so well in so many ways these past two decades, but God, we need a healing in our land. And if you need to take step one, and you need to say yes to Jesus. Pastors will be here to receive you. We'll be right over here to your right, my left. Cindy and I will be there with counselors and pastors to receive you. But I'd like to see a church that believes in the power of love on our faces before God. As I begin to pray, you can step out and join me and just continue. Let's fill this altar. Let's fill this place. Lord, we love you and we trust you. We believe that power really comes on our knees. So much has happened in these two decades since 9-11. And some things have been positive and we've made some good strides, but so many things are negative and divisive. We truly want to be a land of liberty and justice for all. And we know that true liberty and true justice will only come through Christ, the Prince of Peace. So your people gather before you now, and with different voices but one heart, we unite and we say, oh God, would you forgive our sin and heal our land, and would you let us be a light to our neighbors and the nations. Whether we go across the street or around the world, we want people to see Jesus in us. For we pray this in his name. Amen. Let's